This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, this is the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast and iHeartRadio and Dan Patrick Podcast Network production. I'm Joey Santos. And I'm Alan Nevins. And this week we're talking to veteran Disney animator and CEO of Pencilish Animation Studios, Tom Bancroft. Tom is responsible for some of our most beloved Disney characters. And has worked on classics such as The Lion King, Pocahontas, Mulan, and Mary Poppins Returns. He's branched off on his own to create Pencilish Animation Studios, and he's going to tell us all about that, as well as uh, a recent viral challenge he did uh, during the month of May. It was called Mermay, and uh, it's quite interesting, so um, you'll get to learn all about that. Well, it's perfect, because it all fits well within our theme this week, which is Hello Art meets Social Media. So let's grab a drink and dive in, because this drink looks delicious. So what is it? Because it looks a little bit like a smoothie. Well, it's a pina colada, a frozen pina colada. And I figured it was such a hot day today. He doesn't drink, I don't think, really. We're not sure if we like him that much. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) Now, uh, we'll drink for him. I will add the rum to ours. But his will be a virgin version of this drink. And it's two pina coladas in one, sort of. It's a pina colada um, mixed with a frozen strawberry daiquiri. I'm trying to make everything simple here. We don't have all day. We have a podcast to do. I'm going to sit in the kitchen making pina coladas. What am I? I wish I, you I, would. Is there a tiki hut for me to stand under? <laughs> I'll make one if it'll keep you in, in there making pina coladas. In a bikini I've always liked pina coladas. Yeah, and, then the, and then the and other then the one. the other is a daiquiri. And you do typical frozen daiquiri recipe, which everything will be online for you. And what are you calling this drink? I'm calling this drink the Mickey and the Minnie. Oh, good title. I love it. Because they're virgins. Now, you know what's very exciting about this episode is that when this episode airs, you and I will be in Costa Rica. We will. So instead of our normal trip to Europe and to Italy and doing the boating, that all got a little messed up this year. because The last two years. Yeah, the last two years, but also for this year, it got messed up yet again. So I started looking around, and then I've always wanted to go to Costa Rica. Everybody I've ever talked to said, you must go, you must go. And so off we go. Off we go. I found this great place, and we've got four weeks. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I love the idea of what the food is going to be like. It's going to be very interesting to see what the local fare is. You know, So I'm going to come up with some interesting ideas and for drinks and for um food and and little recipes and fun things to explore. Because of that, we have nothing planned as far as our 
two peas in a podcast segment. It's going to be kind of exciting because we're going to do it really on the fly, which I'll decide that day what we're going to make or that, you know, we may even do it from who knows where. I mean, we do it from the house or do it from outside or whatever. Right. But Well, you notice that the house I found had that big, giant, open kitchen. Yeah. So we'll be doing it right from there for sure. We'll show people the views and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. And Alan in the bathing suit, wouldn't you like to see that? Not Eat a, first. Not a, <laughs> Eat first. <laughs> it helps with the nausea. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> Speaking of guilty pleasures. Yes. Seeing me in a bathing suit, I know, is many people's guilty pleasure. <laughs> uh, did you have any guilty pleasures this week, other than seeing me in a bathing suit? No, that that, that was pretty much, that'll last me for the rest of the podcast season. <laughs> <laughs> we could just skip that episode altogether from now on, that segment. <laughs> um, no, actually, you know, it's very interesting. I was fumbling around with the TV channels, you know, what, what do you call that, surfing around or whatever you call yeah, it? Yeah, channel surfing. Channel surfing. You know, I love documentaries, so I was just looking for something to watch. And there was a documentary called Drag Kids. And I was like, drag kids? Like, are they racing cars? No, it was drag kids, kids in drag. Uh-huh. It was 72 minutes, whatever, qu- quite short, you know, for what it is. It's a documentary. A documentary okay. on these kids that are infatuated with drag and performing drag. They focus on these four children. Three of them were boys. One was a girl. The girl, I think, was 12 years old. And the boys were nine, nine, nine years old each. And they, it's really an art form. You know what I mean? And watching this show, watching the, the, the joy of the kids get from this, watching how talented they are, how focused, how committed they are to the performance and the art form, well, I just sat back. I couldn't believe it. But then the, the, real, the thing that took me away the most was the, the support of the parents. How understanding, how loving, and how they were doing everything to push them to be great and to be really good, but embracing and loving. It, it was. It was. So they thought so, if they're going to do this, let's make sure they do it right. Because, and and this is what this is what America and the world needs to understand. It's a performance. Just because you're wearing high heels and a dress and some makeup and you're imitating a female, it's just it's, we have to stop sexualizing it. The mother even said in one scene, somebody called my son gay and she said he's eight how does that equate gay because he's dressing like a girl or or whatever whatever that is hasn't been developed yet and who are you a complete stranger to point to to even suspect that or or expect that or think that that comes with that you know how ignorant can you be well now is the girl dressing as a guy no she's she's also dressing okay yeah she's just being lady gaga with all of the glitz and glamour and the performance that it goes away with and so that was the interesting thing and because even somebody has said, well, why isn't she do? Why, why isn't she a drag king instead of a drag queen? You know what I mean? But she's not dressing but as she's a guy. Not that's a, why. Not going to dress as a guy. The, the whole art of drag is is not that. You know, it was just very interesting. And this was on the heels because then we watched RuPaul's Drag Race finale to see who won. So it was just kind of interesting how one thing just kind of dominoed into the next. So it was a fun evening of. Uh, of of <laughs> had a drag night, you know. I mean, what am I going to say? The night was no longer a drag. Okay, well, stop dragging my heart around. I'll drag. I'm going to drag you by your hair. Is what I'm going to do. <laughs> drag you into that kitchen. Do two peas. You from already the podcast. did. I'll drag you out of that kitchen. <laughs>
Already anyway, dragged me in. what about your guilty pleasure? Looking at yourself in a bathing suit? Why, yes. Stupid. <laughs> um, no, you know what I did this week, which I, is going to be my guilty pleasure, is I did you my soloed. solo flight. Well, I was supposed to do it last week and extenuating circumstances prevented me from doing it last week. But it was just as well because last week after sort of thinking I was going to do it, I was really prepared for this week. And I have to say, you know, it's quite exhilarating because while there is a sense of nervousness to it, because the first time you're in this plane by yourself without an instructor to rely on, whether it's for the radio or if something goes wrong or whatever it is to remind right you, G5. To, or to remind you, you know, that you've some little thing you should be doing because of the circumstance. But I wasn't really nervous in a bad way. It was, it was good nervous, right? And it went really well. And I have to say, I think when I circled around these three times, because you have to go around three times, you have to take off, you have to land, you have to come to a full stop, get off on the taxiway, go back, do it two more times, right? Right. It's not touch and go, it's full stops. But I think I had a smile on the entire time. I really do. I think I was smiling the whole time because there was a part of you going, oh my God, I'm flying by myself, right? That made you exhilarated, but also made you a little nervous. But it was great. I had, I had a good time. It went really well. Strangely enough, I had three really good landings in a row. And I had one little radio faux pas, but it didn't really matter because I was already on the ground and I was off the runway. Oh, good. Well, I'm excited for you on that one, too. Keep me posted. I'll be tuned into channel CBS. <laughs> for the for news. The, for the news. For the plane <laughs> going news. down. <laughs> Local news. So tell us a little bit about our theme today, Joey. Is this something you created? Um, it is not, actually. Our illustrious producer created this theme, which I, I kind of like, and it's called Hello Art, Meet Social Media. So when the two things... Who's um, Art? Art. Well... Who is he? The animator. And his name is Tom, but he creates art. He makes art. He's a animator. So it should be quite interesting. And he has a lot of things that he's created with that in mind to, to grow his social media, to grow all of those things for, for what he's putting forward. So it'll be an interesting conversation with him. Right. Plus, we get to know him personally um, as an artist right. as well. Well, the internet's been kind of interesting that way. While it has opened up, you know, listen, with every good comes bad, right? And the good here is that it took away a lot of the barriers that prevented people who were talented and could never get a job, whether that be as an animator or as a director for film or whatever it is they're doing, because... You had to go through an agent, and the agent, you know, it was all about playing that yep. game. And sometimes the person, well, a lot of times the person, we've seen it, that wasn't the most talented got the job, right? So it has removed the barriers in that sense and allowed a lot of talented people to show what they can do. Right. And a lot of, you know, that cream rising to the top on the internet. Now you're talking about an entire planet of people where amazing artists and everything else are coming forward because they can get to... Uh, the people they need to get to. Mm -hmm. And when we come back, we are going to have animator Tom Bancroft join us. And I'm rather looking forward to this. We'll see you shortly. We hear you shortly. No, you'll hear us shortly. <laughs> we'll be here. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, we're back. And joining our second segment today is Tom Bancroft. Welcome, Tom. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Hi, guys. It's so good to be here. Nice to meet you, Alan and Joey. Now, you know, each week we develop a cocktail to go along with our host. And Joey's going to tell you a little bit about the cocktail he created for you today. (laughs) Well, I hear you don't drink. I don't. (laughs) Okay, so for the sake of animation... Oh, that's beautiful. I didn't realize you would both have it live right now. Oh, yeah. We always do. We tease you. We we get get to drink and you don't. (laughs) You think I have to sit next to him sober? That's never going to (laughs) happen. I I named it the Mickey and the Minnie. And I chose Mickey and Minnie because I assume they're both virgins. And since you don't drink, <laughs> this is all. This is also a virgin. So here's to you. Here's to Very them. Thank you. Thank here's you. To us. Cheers. Beautiful. I bet it's tasty. Now wait. Do I get to know what's in it? Because it looks fruity. It's a pina colada based. That's the white. And then I did a strawberry daiquiri. It's all frozen, and the strawberry daiquiri is the top, and then it blends in together. So it's. The two, the oh, two that's drinks. delicious! Yeah, oh my god, and it's gosh. quite, it's quite delicious actually, even without the rum, even without the rum. Well, no, I I would drink it with the rum if it as oh, long would. as it's as long as the sweet is coming through. Oh yeah, to- totally. I'm I'm sold. Yeah, I would drink so that. So we'll know sure. that when we when we see you in person next time, we'll have it ready yeah. for you. It's Thank really you. good, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> so our theme this week is hello art meet social media. I like that. Which we thought is pretty appropriate for you. And we're excited to talk to you about this because we know you have a lot of experience with the collaboration of these two things. Also, you know probably how social media is transforming the way artists thrive, create, and connect to your audiences. And we don't. So we're hoping you are going to fill us in a little bit on oh, this. I'm going to teach you guys. Okay. We're gonna, yeah. yeah. We're, we're, gonna we're learning us. the social media part the hard way. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get to your viral animation challenges, we want to know a little bit more about you. Okay. I know you've created characters in some of those popular and profitable films, I might add. Tell us a little bit about your favorite projects, a little about who you are and how you got into this and why. I always have to, when I talk about my past, talk about my brother. I have a twin brother, and we grew up drawing together. And so oftentimes when I'm referring to the past, I say we. So that's another reason I bring that up. Uh, so I don't sound like I have a split personality. I was just going to so, say that. <laughs> yeah, sorry, took that. Growing up, we, uh, my brother and I, were drawing all the time and very competitive, but grew up well before DVDs and VHS and the internet. And so... We didn't know about animation, really. We knew it existed. We watched cartoons all the time. Right. But really, it was the heyday, or sort of second golden age of comic strips back in the day. And so, like, the Peanuts were, was still around, Charlie Brown and all that. And then, But then right around that time, like, Garfield was coming out, and then a little bit later, Calvin and Hobbes. And anybody that knows comic strips knows that these are, like, some of the best comic strips of all time. So there's a lot of the old ones were still existing, but then these newer ones were coming out that were just as amazing. So that was what you saw on the Today Show and things like that, where like comic strip artists being interviewed. 
you never saw an animator, really. Uh, it was very rare uh, until about uh, when Michael Eisner took over Disney. He was very savvy with publicity and stuff. And so they started pushing out animators to actually get interviewed, which was like the hugest you know, risk ever. Um, right. W- right around like Beauty and the Beast. And so by then I was already at Disney. So I'm sort of fast forwarding. So what I'm saying is growing up, you just never heard an animator talk. You never heard um, how animation was really done. And the behind the scenes stuff, that all came much later too. Did any animators talk like Porky Pig? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it was usually voice actors. I, th- no, I guess. Kidding, but that would be pretty has, funny actually. If, that would be, yeah. yeah well, we it does make like sense because, you know, with a live action film, you push the stars or the director out there to promote the film. But what do you do with animation? Right. Especially back then, they were like, well, these... These are people that are behind the scene. It would be like taking this cinematographer and putting him up and saying, here, let interview us. That never happens, right? It was almost that strange to think of back then, especially. And then later on, yeah, they didn't let us talk a lot. It was mostly just watching us draw and stuff like that in the clips. But that led to us not even thinking about animation as a career because, I mean, we thought, well, you had to have millions of dollars. You had to staff of hundreds of people. Like only the big conglomerates can do animation until just out of high school, we were taking a class uh, and we were both doing comic strips for the college newspaper. And then we met another comic strip artist there that was also doing a strip and he was amazing. And it was like the first time we we were instantly fell in love with each other artistically (laughs) Uh, because I had a peer that I competed with and artistically kind of knew and was sort of both encumbered by and inspired by. And then along comes a new person. We're like, oh my gosh, there's other people out there like us that are geeky about drawing and, and art and especially cartooning. And then he says, I, I made an animated film this summer. You guys got to come over to my house and watch it. And sure enough, we do. And it's, got a, it's a Super 8 camera that he gets out. And he said, I just made this clay animated film with this stop motion Super 8 camera. Again, this, is, this was on film, right? This is well before VHS. And we saw it and it was horrible. But it was the most inspiring thing to this day that I've ever seen because it ignited this thing in us that went, wait a second, we can do this. This is, it, all of a sudden animation was accessible in, in a way that we'd never even considered. So we did it. We got our own Super 8 camera. We made a little music video and kind of got really adventurous and did lip sync and did this clay animated piece. I'll go into the library, by the way, to discover what is an aperture. What is, you know, uh, we had to discover not only the film side, but also what is cutting? What is, how do you edit, you know, really like splicing film? Literally, we had to learn that too. Much less, how does animation work? And what is, you know, all that kind of thing. So it was like learning a million things all at once. But we made this little thing and it's horrible too. But we were like so excited about it. And then we went, well, wait a second. Now now we had the bug. And now we were like, well, wait a second. We already like to draw. And Disney does animation, but they do it with drawings. And so let's become animators, like hand-drawn animators. And so that's when we found out about CalArts, which was just down the road from us. We li- we're living in California. And that's California Institute of the Arts. And they're in Valencia, still are. It was the first and number one to this day animation school in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I applied to go there, actually. Oh, did you? Not for animation, but just general film and television studies. But yeah, they're quite well known. I think it's super interesting that you and your brother both have the talent to draw. 
I mean, I know you're twins, but... We just drew together all the time. And and so, yeah, the twins thing might be part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, who knows? But I, but it definitely is that you were just spending that amount of time together. We did everything together. And so we were spending the exact same amount of time drawing. And then on top of that, competing for our mom's attention. Like, which one do you like better, right? right. Like, that was the, the question every single day when she came home. And which one is better? Well, I am. But uh, <laughs> to this day. <laughs> what, what were your favorite cartoons growing up that you watched? Oh, you name it. Uh, you know, like even bad ones looking back, like, well, they were all kind of bad. Like on TV, it was almost the low point of animation when I was growing up. So it was like Super Friends and the Han- Hanna-Barbera stuff, Huckleberry Hound and, and Yogi yeah. Bear and, uh, and Fred Flintstone were still on. Those were older. Those were more yeah. from the 60s and stuff. And very like, adult. I mean, even there, you know, I, I believe that the Honeymooners, I mean, the, the Flintstones were modeled after the Honeymooners, weren't Correct, they? yeah. And, you know, obviously there's not the, you know, crass stuff toward women and, and wives. <laughs> right. And then the Tom, so uh, this is, leads to my next question. What, what do you feel about the cancel culture, like canceling these things like Tom and Jerry and this and that, finding all the negatives? Because as children, I mean, I, I understand it now as an adult. As children, we were completely oblivious to it. Even my... African-American friends and, and, and I would watch it as, as children and we'd look at each other and we had no idea. And when we talk about it now, we go, well, I guess that could have been taken offensively, but we didn't think of it that way. There were definitely a lack of, you know, African-Americans in the Flintstones, right? Like, I don't think there was one. Yeah, but they made them of. characters. Yeah. They made them into crows. I mean, that was offensive, black crows. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That wasn't the Flintstones, but yes, you're yeah, right. Yeah, no, that Heckle was Heckle and Jekyll. And Jekyll. Yeah, I don't like cancel culture, at least as far as like, oh, the Tom and Jerry, that's too violent for our kids. Well, I mean, have you seen video games today? <laughs> exactly. We're not, we're not canceling those. Why no, would we go not. back to to this very innocent, you know, like, yeah, he's hanging with a hammer. I get, yeah, I get it. Don't show that to a really young child, obviously. Yeah, right. But um, but they weren't really, ma- they weren't made for kids back then. Those were made for adults. For adults, and, exactly. And uh, and I think to this day, you can watch a lot of the old Warner Brothers and as an adult, enjoy it. You know, it's I funny. mean, I mean, um, Bugs Bunny was in drag every other episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. No, he <laughs> and was Elmer always. Fudd was in love with him and all this carrying on. I mean, it was hilarious. But, yeah, yeah. You know, so you're drawing that line of political correctness political incorrectness, you know, it's, it's very interesting. But as an animator, you're just creating these wonderful characters, and then what comes out of that comes out of that, you know? Uh, you know, that's a whole other debate for sure. But, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> you know, and I get it. You know, I, I will say this. There are parts that we can do more of, though. And my silence about just not, you know, bringing up Black Lives Matter or or maybe even going the next step, which is like, say, hiring somebody that's African-American over a white person or the obvious things of like making a show that is going to have a stronger feeling of diversity, right? Like, I don't think black people want me to make a fully black show. They want that to come from one of somebody that is black, it's, that has that voice, right? That can speak to that experience. But for me to make shows like the Flintstones nowadays, obviously we need to correct that. So yeah, can we go too far? And yeah, for sure we can. And and I think we're starting to correct a little bit. Well, now you guys have solved all our social issues. Let's <laughs> hear about hello our meeting social you, media. When let's, you <laughs> let's talk about cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> so after you went to Cal Arts, is that when you got a job for Disney? Yeah. So we 
both left a year and a half in to CalArts. We were running out of money. And so we ended up having to get a job at Disney. It was an all or nothing. We weren't going to go back next semester if we didn't get into this internship kind of a deal. But fortunately, we did get in. And that was right during The Little Mermaid. They were making Mermaid right then. And so that was about 1988, end of 88, beginning of 89. And we didn't work on that. We were there for nine weeks in an internship where we just did like animation tests and things like that. But we passed that, got hired, and went to the, directly to the Florida studio, this brand new Florida studio that they were opening up that was going to be on tour, too. It was part of Disney MGM Studios that later became Hollywood Studios. And so what was the first character they allowed you to create that, that went on to be something that they said? And how did that come about? Did they basically say, go create the character, create the storyline, create the whole scenario? How much do they give you to do in the beginning and how much do they assign? Yeah. So the, the first one that I, and by the way, that's something that you get as you've climbed the ladder. So after about 10 years, um, like I worked on Young Simba and Lion King, I worked on Pocahontas, but I wasn't the supervising animator. I got to that about 10 years into my career at Disney and that character was Mushu the Dragon in Mulan. So I got to come on to that film as the supervising animator for that character before we knew what the character looked like, before it had a voice, while the scripts were still being written and rewritten at the time. And so I was on it about a good year before we went, even went into production. And so, yeah, that was the fun part was I got to do the final character design of Mushu. And it was almost a six-month process of designing and taking in some of the other influences that had already been there before me, which was some of the storyboard artists, their versions of Mushu, also some other concept artists they brought in, looking at their versions of Mushu, and kind of really putting it all together was more my job than anything, uh, but also experimenting too, trying other different directions, but ultimately doing the final design of Mushu. And so the exciting thing was, was once Eddie Murphy was chosen as the voice. And by the way, before that, we had people like Joe Pesci. And uh, this would have been a very different character, obviously. Right. But he was being considered as a voice. And uh, Richard Dreyfus, who was popular at the time, he was being considered. And so, you know, there's those wise guy characters, which Mushu was. And in one case, it would have been the Italian wise guy. One of them would have been maybe more the, the, the Jewish wise guy. Now we were talking about the urban type of wise guy. And I hope those aren't racial stereotypes, but they probably are. But in general, when you have that sort of wise talking, let's put it that way, going to give the, the main character all the wrong advice in a very funny way, that's what Mushu really was, right? And right. we'd seen those kind of characters in a lot of different movies. Well, they're street characters, basically. Yeah, right, right. street type characters. Yeah, exactly. Well, let me ask you, it must be quite different with animation because in live action, you know, a screenwriter has written a script. He has an idea in his head who these characters are on the screen, and then they hire actors to come in and play them. But with animation, I would think that you have to really think through what is this character going to look like, what what's his character going to be what's his tone a lot has to be worked out before the screenplay is written no oh yeah i mean that's the funny thing that a lot of people don't realize about animation hand-drawn animation back in the day and now we have computer animation of course now but it's still the same which is anything that shows up on the screen had to be designed if there's a lamp behind that character that lamp didn't just get there because we're on a set and it happened to have a lamp on it right like Every single thing was designed and purposely put in that shot. 
And so, of course, with the main characters like Mushu, that was a big part of it too, was like every color on him, what his fin is a little bit darker red than his skin. And, you know, that's because we're considering what his backgrounds he's going to be against. He's going to be against like a lot of greens in the forest scenes and things like that. Oh, that's going to look really nice with the reds popping off of that. So there's just so much forethought, yes. And then you add in the acting and the performance of the character once we have a voice actor like Eddie Murphy, and he's coming in and reading these lines of dialogue, and he's giving context and inflection to it that maybe we didn't quite expect. You know, you can read a line with different context in a hundred different ways, right? And so it was being written at that point for Eddie, kind of like thinking that he was going to do the voice in many cases, but... Obviously, he took it even further. Now, I won't say he did a lot of ad lib like you heard about with Robin Williams and the genie. He really did just keep to the script primarily, but you know, read it in the way that Eddie would read it for sure. Well, I don't. Did Robin Williams ever keep to the script? Oh God, no! <laughs> Trying to be the worst interview in the world. My drink's getting low, so we'll be right back. When these characters are created, uh, so for example, if you if if it was a horse or a donkey or a, that's already done in the script before, or is it or is the script to the character? You're saying like would it have been decided that it was a dragon in, in this right, case yeah. with Mushu? Yeah, yeah, all those things are decided in the script for sure. Um, and they're not just saying oh it's a character. It's no, it's a dragon. Like you didn't walk in I, uh, creating this dragon for example and then they said okay let's make the story around this dragon it was already the dragon and then oh yeah no no no. yeah so this story had been around mulan and a version of mulan at one time it was called china doll right Uh um it had changed and it was the legend of fa mulan at one point and anyway by the time it became mulan you know it was evolving and evolving evolving and at one point when I came on, it wasn't even just a dragon. It was going to be a dragon and a phoenix. There were going to be like two sidekick, two sidekicks from uh-huh. Mulan. And one was sort of yin and one was yang. And so they were giving, it was sort of like the devil and the angel on the shoulders, right? Sure. The Chinese version of that is sort of a yin and a yang characters. And we were going to call them yin and yang, but one was a dragon, one was a phoenix. And so it, it really did evolve the whole time I was on it. So at one point I was designing way different kinds of dragons and stuff. They're always thin because that's the uh-huh. Chinese dragon sure. compared to the European dragon, which are more lizard-like. Yeah. Um, you know, they're they're more snake-like in their body. So that part didn't evolve so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Did you have a favorite character at when you were at Disney? Does one jump out for you? I would love to say another character, but Musha really is is it because I, I was so involved in his creation and then and was with him for about two years and and his acting and his performance, kind of every element of him, not much less his, his drawing and his design. Very proud of that. It's kind of the, the pinnacle of what I did at Disney, for sure. And how long were you at Disney before you decided to create your own animation studio? So I was there for 12 years. And then after that, I had started my own company, uh, Funny Pages Productions, with another animator buddy of mine from Disney. And we ran that together for about seven years and doing all kinds of different things, children's books and all that. And then I was working for another company for another five years. So more recently, I've launched Pencilish Animation Studios. And Pencilish is the first crowdfunded animation studio. And I'm super happy and proud to say that because this does work into the other part of this, which is the internet, right? Is that now we are able to tap into our followings 
and actually be partners with them in this company. And so I already have a large following on Instagram and had for a few years. I've written books. You have like a million followers or something? I wish I could say I had a million. Um, so yeah, nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand. Uh, it's like two hundred and thirty thousand. So oh, okay, it's, well, it's a you're lot. getting there. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's uh, enough to be called an influencer, which is really bizarre at my age. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but we I'm still like, have a lot more wisdom to influence. Listen, l- let's not let's not negate that. Yeah, There's, you have Good to. You're going to influence somebody. You better know what, you, what the hell you're talking about. Well, I wish that was true of everybody that's. Uh, out <laughs> I know. There, uh, not everything is a makeup tutorial. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, tell us a little bit about the crowdfunding. By the way, you'd be surprised how many people still don't understand crowdfunding. You go online and you ask people to put money into a new venture, whether it's a thing or a company or whatever, and you and the money is raised online. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I find that rather interesting because I think it's a whole new model for someone trying to start a company where they don't have the money. So there's the model that some people may know of crowdfunding, which is Kickstarter. If you've heard of Kickstarter, uh, I've done four Kickstarters, you know, for a graphic novel and other things that I wanted to kind of just do smaller personal projects. And so you hear about those for books and uh, things like that, even like uh, maybe a short film or something like that. Right. They're usually creative endeavors on Kickstarter. But what you're doing there is, and this is the big differentiator, is that you're donating money. You're basically donating money for somebody to kickstart, get a start on their dream project. And it's usually like that, the difference You're being nice and throwing them It's a project, yeah. And usually you're getting something back, you know, in the case of a book or something like that, like I did an art book. um, And, you know, they're basically pre-buying that book. And then when I get it done, I, I ship it to them, okay? Right. So that's the Kickstarter, and that is crowdfunding. They're giving you money up front to fund this thing. Now, this version is called a Reg CF, Regulation CF. It's all set up by our government, and it's all watched over by them because, in this case, it's much more complex, the setup of it. There's a lot of paperwork. You have to hire lawyers. There's, a, there's an initial investment, really, that's involved in this, not unlike Kickstarter, and because you actually are fundraising like you're you're it's a you get stock when you're right. so it's not a donation they are getting they're becoming shareholders in a company not just a project and so when i'm forming pencil animation studios i'm saying to them come and join me and own ip that we are creating which would be a new show or a new series or even later on hopefully a feature film and you're going to own a piece of it by owning a piece of the company you're owning a piece of everything we create and if I was Walt Disney, and this was in the 1930s, you could own a piece of Mickey Mouse. And how amazing would have that have been, and worth a ton of money, of course, too, had you still owned a piece of Mickey Mouse, right? And that's what's groundbreaking and kind of revolutionary about this, is that the Disneys, the DreamWorks, the Pixars, they're not going to let you own a piece of their properties, right? Right. So they're investing in you. They believe in you. They think your company's going to thrive. They've invested in you. And the same way people invest in a a chef who's going to open a new restaurant and they think that restaurant's going to be a hit and they invest in it. Yeah. I gave it a lot of thought and this was during the pandemic. So this was like us last summer or so. Yeah. About a year ago, almost that we were starting to talk about it. And I was like, you know, I got to have a, a goal in mind. And so what I came up with was creating short form animated content because I want to have a quicker return on investment. So if I said, oh, we're going to raise money and we're going to make a feature film, which seems like the the first natural step. 
well, that's going a little too big, a little too soon, right? Like, because any animated film, we all know it's very expensive. Like $10 million is like the cheapest you can do in the United States for an animated film. And then you'd have to figure out how you're going to distribute it and release it. Exactly. So I said, no, 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 I'm just going to make animated TV series, but I'm going to make them short form. And we're going to make them four minutes long each. And so we'll have three different series. Because they're short form, we'll get them done sooner, but we'll also get them done cheaper. And we all already have our own distribution system in our hands. So why aren't we feeding into that? And so that's the other thing that I hope is kind of groundbreaking about Pencilish is that we're making this for the TikTok generation. We're making short form entertainment that is animated with characters and stories that you're going to hopefully get addicted. It's episodic, so you're going to want to come back, um, but watch them in smaller snippets. That's really kind of what we've come up with for goal number one. And what that feeds is obviously the stockholders and, and telling them that, okay, we're going a route that makes more sense for return on investment. But on the other side of that is we're also going to newer creators and we're saying, you've just come out of animation school potentially, or you've been out for a couple of years and you've dipped your toes in the Disney's and stuff. What is that amazing story that you want to tell that's, that you're hiding away in a drawer? Because basically if you brought it out to Disney, they would say, we own that. Thank you. Could you leave that behind, that Disney path, and go direct and say, let's make this together? And so we're partnering with creators. We're helping them fund their dreams. Well, I would think that they'd be thrilled because how many, you know, not everybody can go work for Disney. There's going to be a lot of unhappy people. They need other outlets. Yeah. You launched the Mermaid Pencilist Challenge about, I don't know, four years ago. And the 2021 challenge just ended. I think just as this episode's going to hit, the challenge will have ended. And it's a month-long international art challenge, right? That's become sort of this viral phenomenon. Tell us a little bit about what that is. So Mermaid, yeah, was an accidental thing that I launched about six years ago now. And it's only gotten bigger and bigger every year, uh, especially the pandemic really pushed it because it's in May. And that was soon after it really, everybody was locked down and artists were frustrated, right? And frustrated artists want to draw mermaids, apparently. So Horny frustrated artists. <laughs> I had drawn a, a drawing about six years ago that went viral. It was these two teenage mermaids on their shell phones. <laughs> and I had four girls, so I knew what this looked like. They were on rocks that looked like sort of like beds, and they're just looking at their shell phones and kind of comparing stories of gossip or whatever. And that image went viral, and I said, you know what, I should just draw mermaids for a month. I loved The Little Mermaid. That was when I first started my career and had nostalgia toward that. And, but what I found out was, and I, so then I also I had a large following, and so I opened it up to all my followers that are artists, and I said, let's all just draw mermaids for a month. And that first time out, it was hundreds of thousands of people all around the world that got involved and it took off, and I realized that people not only like mermaids more than I ever dreamed, but they really love the idea of an art challenge and being in it together as a community. And so it's it's locked into Instagram for the most part, and that's where we started it. But now it's on TikTok, and it already has like 35 million views on TikTok, and we have well over a million on Instagram over these last six years. And so it's really just a worldwide drawing event where every day in may you draw a new mermaid in a new so way cool. but then the other side of it is we've created a contest and we have sponsors like wacom technologies and um so now we have an illustration category 
And that's where Pencilish comes in is we just added this year for the first time an animation category to animate a mermaid or a little short film about a mermaid. And that's, uh, yeah, so there's prizes for both. So what do you win, a trip to Copenhagen? <laughs> <laughs> is that where mermaids are from? I'm no, but the, the famous mermaid on the rock, the statue. Oh, of course. The fam- of course, yeah, it's right there. I, I have seen that, yeah. yeah. For, I, I for Hans, it. Hans we Christian visited Anderson. it. Correct. Exactly. Yes. We, we rode bikes it. out yeah. to it. Yeah, we rode bikes out to it. Tell us a little bit about your yeah. uh, your podcast that you have with your brother and what's that yeah. is, that's so, about and the guests you have and what you talk yeah. about. Well, and we've been doing this for about six years now. It's called the Bancroft Brothers Animation Podcast. Obviously, I mentioned him already. We're twin brothers, but we both have Disney backgrounds. We both were there for about 12 years. He created Pumbaa um, in The Lion King and while I was doing Young Simba. We worked on different things, but sometimes the same movies. And so we have a kind of a long history there. And so what we do on our podcast is basically we were calling each other and talking on the phone. We've always lived apart, unfortunately. So we both moved to Florida, but then I got married to a girl in Florida and he was still dating a girl in California. So after a year, he went back to California, married her. And so we've created our families 3,000 miles apart. And so our careers have been very separate other than that first year. And so I was working for Disney on Lion King but I was in Florida. He was in the California studio. We're working on the same movie, 3,000 Miles Apart, in a lot of our uh, career. And so we would call each other all the time and just talk animation because we're such geeks. And so eventually we said, why don't we just do a podcast? We're already talking industry stuff all the time. And then we can start bringing in guests. And so I'd say 75% of the time we have, we're, we're doing it in an interview way. And so we're interviewing like a director of either the newest Netflix animated film that just came out, like the Mitchells versus the machines is a new one that just dropped on on Netflix. We have a great relationship with Netflix and they'll usually come to us and say, would you like to interview, you know, this director or whatever for this next film that's come out. And so, because we're the number one animation podcast, so they come to us, which is awesome. It's finally gotten to that point. The other times we're calling up an old friend that directed The Little Mermaid. We were there during those days, and so we just want to reminisce. So there's a nostalgic and historic side, but then there's sort of an edutainment, I guess you could say. And then um, also there's sort of the, the newer things that are going on. We like to talk about where the industry is headed to. So, And then sometimes it's just Tony and I getting on and talking about what's happening in the industry right now. I think it's great. Yeah, I think it's great, too. I love it. You've taken something. By the way, it goes back to our conversation. Take something you love, and you'll find a way to make a living out of it. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what you did. Yeah. Yeah, and I still love it. I love animation. I love creating characters. And it's more popular than ever the last, and especially the last, what, 20 years? How it's just amazing. Even some of the TV shows on Fox. Oh, sure. Some of those crass, crazy shows are all animated, Mm -hmm. but you can't stop watching them. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, adults are definitely watching animation. I think the nerds have won, and I'm happy to <laughs> to uh, be a part of that. Well, all the best to you guys. Where can listeners find you on social media? My personal one on Instagram and on Twitter is Tom Bancroft one the number one. But for Pencilish, if you're interested in Pencilish, please go to wefunder.com backslash Pencilish. And you can find out about how to invest, but also just see a video of me talking about what we want to do. Maybe a shorter version is to go to pencilish.com and then click on the link to go to WeFunder and check that out. 
All right. Well, well thank, thank you, you very much for taking the time. It. We really do appreciate it. All the best it. of luck. We'll follow along with you, too. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to go check out those mermaid drawings now when I hang up from you. And I'm going to order that drink. I can't wait to have it. Uh. <laughs> All right. Well, cheers to that. Thank you, guys. That Tom is an interesting guy. Very. And I, I can't tell you how pleased I am that he's taken his love and turned it into business. Absolutely. You know, that's my thing. And and that, that camaraderie with his brother is so great, too. Yeah, that's great. They started together and continue together. It's fantastic. Yeah. Both talented guys. So, as always, we want to thank all of you for tuning in each week and listening to this podcast. If you like it, the best way to support us is a free thing you can do, which is very much appreciated. You can leave us a review. You can give us five stars. Four stars are unacceptable. Three stars are very unacceptable. Two stars don't exist in our world. And one star is just a slap in the face. (laughs) You could also tell your friends about it. That's what we really need. We need more friends tell more friends about the podcast. It helps us immensely each time when a review comes in. And the more we get, the longer we get to do this crazy thing each week for you. And please don't forget to tune in each week for our segment called Two Peas in a Podcast, where we go on Instagram and Facebook Live. And I attempt to teach Alan an easy recipe for the week. It's live, so what happens there, happens there. It's a lot of fun. And we also want to thank those of you who have been tuning in each week. And we love your comments. They're, they're really enjoyable. So if you're interested in sending us a question or a comment and tell us how much you love us, you can send it to contact at twoguysfromhollywood.com. We'll talk at you soon. Two Guys from Hollywood is hosted, created, and produced by Alan Nevins and Joey Santos. Produced by Lauren Boone. Editing and post-production by Nathan Moody. Music by Luca. Executive produced by Dan Patrick. It is also executive produced by Paul Anderson and Nick Panella for Workhouse Media. This podcast is a production of Renaissance Literary and Talent and Dan Patrick Productions in association with Workhouse Media. Two Guys from Hollywood is a production of iHeartRadio and the Dan Patrick Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 